0: I'm Kerry. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to bring the last message in this series, Joyful, and uh, it's also my privilege to be able to be here, uh, be a part of the team. Um, I'm just so grateful for my pastor, Kevin. Aren't y'all grateful for him? Let's give him a hand. He and Amanda, their family, so grateful for their vision and obedience in following God and moving back here and and starting this church, and it was no small thing for my family to Uh, to move here and join with, and I'm just grateful to get to serve God by serving you uh, alongside Kevin and the other pastors and the staff, all the volunteers. Um, You guys do such a great job of creating environments and spaces and loving people and pointing them to Jesus, and so just grateful today. Uh, As we begin, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a day that just sucked all the joy out of you? Have you ever had a day like that? Um, It can start uh, maybe right off the bat where the alarm doesn't go off when you thought it was going to, and so you're running late, and man, it's just no joy left there, and so you're speeding, you're on your way, and you get pulled over and you get the ticket, man, the joy is just, it's gone, can this day get any worse? You know, or maybe you're like me, and you woke up today in this humidity, just did a number on your hair, and so you just, you're like, God, just put it in a ponytail, you know what I'm saying, ladies? I mean, it's just, what else are we going to do? We all have those kind of days, and so I had a day kind of like that, It's about 10 years ago. Uh, Sarah and I both got uh, new vehicles Mine was a brand new truck and hers was a new to her car And she loved this car And we bought it from an individual Mine we bought brand new from a dealer And so we, we bought my truck And then a couple days later we bought this car for her And we got it home And then the next day we went out to start it The battery was dead And I'm like, ah, we just bought this car It's an omen, it's going to be a, a cursed vehicle And Sarah's like, just, it's just a battery I calmed down, I was like, you're right so we jump-started it, and I said, hey, let's just go to Walmart right now. We'll put a new battery in it, and we'll be done. And so I told her, I said, hey, you take the truck and follow me, right, because I'm the one driving the car with the bad battery. And she says, okay, and then she gets in the truck and leaves. And I'm like, I just I just – don't tell her I told the story. She's serving in kids this morning leading the elementary. I just – literally just said, follow me, and she takes off. And so I'm trying to catch up to her, and I'm driving the car – and we're driving through a town. It's a little small downtown area in this town, Livingston, Texas. Anybody ever been to Livingston, Texas? Didn't think so. Um, and I, I was on, on staff at a church there. And I'm kind of looking at one of the buildings, and I look over at the courthouse. And when I look back, she has stopped at a stop lot. And I run into the back of my brand-new truck with her new-to-her car. And those cars are built for safety. So when I hit... That hood just went like right up in the air. And I was, I mean, stuff started pouring out. And you know what happened instantly? My joy was gone. So I did what any man would do in that moment. I blamed her because she stopped short. She stopped like 40 feet from the white line. I'm like, why did you stop so short? She's like, you hit me. It's your fault. We still debate it. She still feels like she's winning. I still feel like I am. The point being, stuff happens that steals your joy. Would you agree with that? It happens, because life sometimes is amazing, and sometimes things happen and it steals joy. The message today is about keeping your joy. Now, we've worked our way through this series. We looked at the difference between joy and happiness. That was week one. You guys remember that one, that happiness can be a bit of a moving target. It's based on circumstances, but joy is this... Internal thing. We looked at that. We looked in the second week at how to have a good bad day. We're, we're not going to revisit that so much, but how to have a good bad day. Today we're going to look at at keeping joy. In the third week we talked about contentment because we all struggle with contentment. We we discovered that, but we can find the secret to contentment. And then last week, Kevin spoke on the joy of giving. So, how to, how do we keep our joy in the midst of all the ups and downs, the good days, the bad days? How do we maintain our joy? How do we sustain it? Well, here's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3. Now, this series has been rooted in the book of Philippians. The first verse, he says this Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Did you see that first word? I've got it highlighted. It's whatever. Can you guys say whatever with me? Whatever. I checked. There's no. There was no fine print under that. There was no clause that said unless, you know, you run into your new truck with your wife's new car, then you can. Now it says whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Because there are a lot of whatevers in life that come and they, they want to steal our joy. They want to take it away. Matter of fact, some of you right now are going through a whatever. What is the whatever in your life right now that's stealing your joy? The thing that if it was fixed, if it was gone, if it was there, if that relationship, whatever it is, I don't want to fill in the blank for you. I want you to do it. What is the whatever in your life right now that's stealing your joy? Because Paul says, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. That means that we can keep our joy even when whatever happens. Because some of you, you've been hit with some pretty severe whatevers. So much that us on the outside look and go, man, they've had a really bad go of it lately. But whatever happens, we can keep our joy. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you three truths that will help you keep your joy. These are truths from God's Word, and if we believe them, then we'll apply them to ourselves, and they're going to help us keep our joy. And here's the first one. Let's just dive right in. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. That's the first truth. You've got to believe that. If you believe it, it will help you keep your joy. Uh, Psalm 11:7 says this, The Lord always does right and wants justice done. Everyone who does right will see His face. The Lord always does right and wants justice. God is good all the time, no matter what's happening, no matter what we're in the middle of, whatever it is that you're in the middle of right now, God is still good. In the midst of that, there's a story in the New Testament of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. Maybe you've heard that one before. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they drag this woman before Jesus. They want to humiliate her, and they want to catch him. So they're trying to trick him, and they say, we caught this woman committing adultery. What should we do with her? Jesus says, well, what does the law say to do? And they say, well, the law says she should be stoned. And Jesus says, that sounds good to me. How about the one of you that's never sinned You cast the first stone, and then the rest of us will follow suit. Now, when they hear that, it changes things for them, and they kind of realize that they weren't able to trick him. He turned it around on them. It says they slowly, they started to drop. And we're not talking about pebbles. We're talking about big rocks like that would hurt if you get hit with them. They start dropping them, and they walk away. And then Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. And he said, I don't accuse you. Either go and sin no more. It's an amazing story. We look at it we go, God. That's so amazing, this mercy and grace that Jesus displayed. But there's something else going on here. See, when I read that story, one of the first things I think is, you know, execution sounds a little bit harsh for committing adultery. Now, you may disagree with me, but there's a study that said that as many as 60% of men and 40% of women right now have committed adultery. Do not look around the room. There's a good chance. There's somebody in here that's already, actually, with that high number, 60, there's a a better chance that you know someone who's committed adultery than that you don't. With that many people, if we decided we're going to start stoning all of them, we might run out of rocks. So you might say, well, that seems a little bit harsh. And I would kind of think that too. It It seems a little bit disproportionate. Does that punishment really fit the crime, God? Is that really what the law, it is. It's what the law said. The law said if they were caught. But actually, the law said a little bit more than that. The law said, number one, that if people were caught in the act of adultery, the man and the woman, both parties, were to be executed, both of them. And in this story, we only see the woman. Where's the guy? So we know it's a setup. But there was also more to the law than just that. It said that for them to be brought like that, that there had to be two witnesses, eyewitnesses who saw it happen. That means somebody was watching this whole thing go down. Okay, I don't, even know, I don't really know what to do with that. Um, it also says this. It says that for them to be executed, they had to be warned in advance that if they committed this sin, that the penalty was execution. So that basically means that you've got a guy and a girl, and they come in. There's a couple of Pharisees there, religious leaders, pastors, who come in and go, and hey, listen. I know you guys are about to commit adultery. Let's just we talk this through. Um, if you choose to commit the adultery, Uh, Number one, you're going to be executed. You're going to be stoned for that. You guys, yeah, we're cool with that, okay? We're going to be in the closet watching. (laughs) What the heck is that? So we know that there was actually something legally here that didn't match up. Jesus knew that too. He knew that legally they didn't actually have a case. So what does this have to do with God being good all the time? Because if God established this really high standard, commit adultery, you get stoned for it. That seems really high. But here's what God did the standard for being found guilty was even higher. It's really difficult to be caught in the act of adultery with two witnesses who warned you in advance that you were going to be executed if you did it. That's a really small window of people who are willing to go through with that, okay? It's it's almost impossible. And the reason God did that, he set the standard high, the penalty was very severe, but the the standard for being found guilty was really high too. And the reason is because God loves justice. And he didn't want somebody who was powerful or who had influence or a position or money to be able to just accuse anybody of anything and they would be punished for it. Are you following me on that? Everybody was held to the same standard. Isn't that what justice is? The country we live in, it's founded, our laws are founded on this same Judeo system. We want fairness. We want that's what justice is, right? When the correct punishment is given for the crime. And to the person who's actually guilty, God always does what's right and he loves justice. God doesn't want to see the innocent get away with it. He doesn't want to see the innocent, excuse me, the innocent punished. He doesn't want to see the guilty getting away with a crime. He wants what is right, he does what's right. And our sin, it is a it's a transaction. We commit a we commit sin, we're sinners, and the Bible says that that what we earn for that is death. The wages of sin is death. So we sin and we earn that. God wants Justice, that's what he does. This whole thing, it's, it's about God being right. In the book of Daniel, Daniel's writing about the Babylonian captivity. And just a real quick background here. The, the people of God, the Israelites, they had sinned against him. And so God allowed a foreign nation to come in, invade, destroy their city, carry them up into captivity, make them slaves. And Daniel's writing out of that kind of environment. So all of this has happened. And here's what he writes in, in Daniel 9. Verse 14, he says, therefore, the Lord has brought upon us the disaster he prepared. That sounds really harsh. But then he says, this is the Lord our God was right to do all of these things, for we did not obey him. They had an agreement. Their, God's agreement with his people was always, if you obey me and you follow me, it will go well with you. I will bless you. You'll be fruitful and multiply. But he said, if you disobey, I will allow people to come in. You'll go into captivity. That was the deal. They didn't hold up their end of the deal. God held up his end of the deal. But you know what else God did? He always promised that if they would repent, he would return to them and he would heal their land. He would bring them out of captivity. That was the cycle that they got in. Read the Old Testament. This is the cycle they were in. They would follow God. Oh, we love God. God, he's the one true God. And everything would go well with them. And then they would start worshiping false gods. They would wander away from him. And so God would allow persecution to happen and people to come in and take them captive and then be overthrown. And they'd be like, woe is me. And then they would repent and God would return. This was the deal because God is just. He always does what's right. God is good all the time. Even in the midst of your whatever, God is good all the time. But we start to, and and when Paul told us this, he said, whatever happens, I want you to rejoice. I'm telling you this to safeguard your faith because something happens. When something happens, when the whatever hits us, many times our default reaction is to begin to question the goodness of God. For a lot of you, you've been in scenarios where something bad has happened and you got mad at God. Some of you are there right now. You began to blame God. You began to question his goodness. Why did this happen to me? Why do I have to go through this? Why would a good God ever allow that to happen? We start to question his goodness. It steals our joy. We we doubt his goodness. But I'm going to tell you this. If you believe that God is good all the time, you'll doubt your doubt. When you have that moment where you doubt the goodness of God, a red flag should go up in your mind. And you should immediately go, wait a minute, something is going on here. This situation is trying to steal my joy. The enemy is trying to use this in my life to get me to doubt the goodness of God. I'm not going there. I'm going to do my homework. And that's where you do your homework and you begin to realize, man, even this woman who's caught in the act of adultery and you think it seems severe, but you see that when you do your homework, God is good. He wants justice. He has a system that he has put in place. He is good. He is always working because God is good all the time. If you read the Psalms again and again, King David, as he would write, he would cry out for the help of God. And he said, God, when are you going to come and rescue me? But then he would always end by saying, God, I always know that you're good and that you are working even when I don't see you. And even when I couldn't see you, your right hand was carrying me. For a lot of us, we can look back over times in our life where we thought, man, this is terrible, this is the worst thing. Maybe we're even questioning God. But when we look back, we see he was carrying us through it. He was working and preparing us for what's next. He was using it in our life. He was refining us. He was preparing us for another opportunity later on down the road because God is always good. And that leads me to the second point. We are not good most of the time. That's true. I think most of us would acknowledge that the most innocent among us are the babies, the little ones, right? We love the little ones. They're such sweet. They're so, you know, love the little ones. But, you know, I have three kids and I haven't taught any of them to say mine. I, I haven't taught a single one of them to take something that wasn't theirs. I haven't taught any of them to try to hoard the good stuff, right? If I, if I give, um, uh, if we have a large brownie and I put it in front of one of my sons, i say, hey, cut that into two pieces, one for you and one for your brother. There will always be a bigger piece, right? Am I right? I didn't teach them that. They're sinners. They're terrible little people. And how do we know that? That's not just me not liking my kids. I love them. Here's what the Bible says. Psalm 51.5. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. That means when they were still in the womb, they were little sinners. Just waiting to get out and start wreaking havoc. (laughs) But aren't they precious? We just love them. My wife and I get so frustrated. We lay in bed at night and we tell stories about them, how awesome they are. Don't you love their little face? He's so handsome. She's the prettiest little girl in the world. But they're evil. <laughs> and we joke about it, but we see it. You don't teach them to lie. You don't teach them to steal. You don't have to do that because they come out. No one ever taught you any of those things. Now, some people taught you how to do them and get away with it. But no one taught you, you because it's, it's who we are from, from birth. That's who we are. We're a sinner. And we are not good most of the time. And for most of us, you are thinking, oh, I'm a pretty good guy. You are. You're a great guy. You're a great girl. Like, you're the get-the-shirt-off-your-back kind of person. You pull over in the rain with lightning coming down and change a flat tire. Like, you're that kind of person. You're you're a pretty good guy. But the Bible says from the, from the womb you're a sinner because goodness isn't about your behavior. Good isn't about behavior. It's about your nature. You're stained with it. It's who you are. It's woven into the fabric of this flesh and bone and blood that you walk around in. And that's because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And it stained them. It changed really even their DNA. And so now it gets passed down to everyone who's a descendant. And that's all of us. So from the womb, we're already sinners. So we come out and we sin because we're sinners. And because we sin, we're sinners. And it's just a vicious thing we go through. We're not good most of the time. Even we have pockets of doing good things. We are not good because good is about more than our behavior. It's about our nature. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I didn't say it, the Bible said it. That's all of us. There's this incredible equality among us that we're all bad people. We're not good most of the time, but God is good all the time. And we start to question the goodness of God in these moments, many times because we think we're good. I'm a pretty good guy. I work hard. I drop a 20 in the bucket at church. I serve once. so I'm a pretty good guy. Why am I going through this, God? And we're questioning the goodness of God because based on our supposed goodness. But we're not good. No, we're sinners. That's who we are. And if we're honest, we admit that. To be honest, you can't come to Jesus without admitting that you're a bad person, that you're a sinner. You can't. You still think you're good. you would never really come to him. We have to admit it. But there are people among us, and you might be one of them, who are bad, but they, they think they're good. They think they're pretty good. They think they do a pretty good job. These people are called legalists. And Paul, when he's writing to this church in Philippi, he's concerned about these legalists because what they wanted to do was set up all these certain standards and all these rules. They said, hey, if you follow all these rules and do these things, then God will love you and accept you. And Jesus came and said, no, 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 no. You can't ever be good enough. You can't do anything good enough. You're that, that's not how it works. And so Paul was warning them He's like, hey, listen, and so he has some pretty severe warnings. He starts here in verse 2 of Philippians 3. He said, watch out for those dogs. That's the harshest word he could come up with. I probably would have called them cats, maybe, um, snakes, I don't know. He said, these people who do evil, they're bad people, right? Who, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, the background of that is is that in the Old Testament, God's covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants The the sign that they had accepted the agreement with God was that all the males would be circumcised. And we all know circumcision is a very pleasant experience, and they were all glad to sign up for it. Um, If you don't know what it is, don't Google it, okay? (laughs) At least not with kids around. Don't Google what it is. Um, And so, they, but these people were saying that now, if you come to Jesus, and these were Gentiles, these people who weren't Jews, so they didn't grow up being circumcised when they were babies. So they, these, they said, hey, if you want to come to Jesus now and you're not a Jew, you've got to be circumcised too. And, and the, the pure gospel was it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So they're adding to it. And he said, you beware of these guys. They're trying to set up their own rules. Verse 3 says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Because again, circumcision in the Old Testament was the symbol of their agreement with the covenant. The symbol of our agreement with the covenant is that we worship God in spirit. So we're the ones who've truly been circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Why can't I put confidence in my own human effort? Because I'm not good most of the time. I'm not a reliable source for goodness. But we tend to default back to relying on our own righteousness. We start out in this life doing that. We come out of the womb and we're bad. We're sinners but we start trying to improve our lives. We, we know that, oh, I need to stop doing that. We, we notice that even from a young age. Oh, I've got to, and so we'll spend our lives. But then many of us, we've come to Jesus. We've received his forgiveness. We realize we couldn't be good enough. I came to faith in Jesus at 10 years old, so I'm 27 years into following him. At 27 years in, I still find myself, maybe you identify with this, defaulting back to depending on my own righteousness. I know Jesus has saved me, but I still feel like I've got to do certain things to keep him from getting mad at me. So, if for you, that might look like I got I to do church attendance. I got to make sure I read my Bible at least 15 minutes every day. And if I miss a day, I'm going to have to read twice as much tomorrow because I got to make up and check off that box from yesterday. Uh, maybe you got a whole other list. Man, I got to stop drinking so much. I need to stop beating my wife. I need to, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank. You've got this list of things, okay? And, and all that is, is that's, that's self-righteousness. That's you trying to be good in order to somehow become righteous. That's what we default to. The problem with that is, is that you do not have the ability to achieve righteousness. You can never achieve righteousness. You can't achieve it. You can only receive it. Because if you're a sinner, stained by sin permanently, what makes you think you could ever produce anything that's righteous? You're not capable of it. Because you're stained permanently with sin. That's what you're capable of, is to do everything that's going to be a little bit stained by sin, even the best things that we do. How many of you ever found yourself doing something good, and in the back of your mind, the only reason you're doing it is because you look good doing it? You did something good for the wrong reasons. No righteousness there. You can't achieve righteousness. You can only receive it. Romans 10.3 10, says this, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This legalism, this setting up rules and boundaries, that's where I don't want to submit to the righteousness of God that only comes through Jesus. I'm going to establish my own righteousness. So I've got my own standards for how I live. And as long as I do that, then I think I'm good enough. I mean, I've known people like that. You share the gospel with them, and they go, no, no, I'm a pretty good guy. I do this, this, they've got a whole thing. I donate to charity, I volunteer, they've got they are really, they're pretty good people. But they've set up their own, they've tried to establish their own righteousness, and you can't do that. That's morality. It's, it's perfectly good behavior, but it's not Christianity. Because righteousness isn't about behavior. It's not, it's not about your good behavior. Your sin isn't about your good behavior, it's about your nature. Because you're a sinner since birth, so anything you do has that all over it. And so Paul, in trying to establish this, he's like, listen, guys, there are going to be people who come, and they're going to say, you got to do this, this, and this to be good enough. But trust me, that's not the way. Trust me. If, and so he shares his story. Here's what he says, starting in verse 4. He said, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous, I harshly persecuted the church. That's the followers of Jesus. As for righteousness, and don't miss this, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul said, "I I was perfect. That's obeying the law without fault, right? He never broke any of the rules. He was Mr. Goody-two-shoes. We would have all hated him. He actually said, I lived in such a way that you couldn't even bring an accusation against me. Because if somebody said, Paul, do this, everybody would go, no way. Paul, Paul would, you maybe, but Paul, no, he would never do that. That's the way he lived, without fault. He said, if there was anyone who could feel confident in their own effort, it was me. He was the best guy who ever lived apart from Jesus. That's what he said. But he didn't stop there. Look at verse 7. I once thought these things, this following the rules, this being perfect, this doing it without fault, were so valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. That word worthless there, the original language actually is the idea of uh, like human feces. But the original authors didn't like putting those words in there. He's basically dropping the S-bomb here. He's saying... Everything I did was like a pile of, yeah, compared to Jesus. It's worthless. He was, he was the best guy ever. He was the perfect guy. And he said, all of that, all I accomplished was like a pile of waste compared to Jesus. That's all I could do. And that's what happens. When we get to some, some level of morality, like we, like we cleaned up our life, we stopped doing all those things, whatever your list is, and we're kind of, man, I'm, I'm, really, I'm doing pretty well right now. What do we do? We get filled with pride. We, st- we, we start avoiding some area of sin, whatever the one that's easy for you to avoid is, and then we start judging everyone else who struggles with it and looking down our nose at them. Don't we do that? And so whenever we do achieve some level of morality, it just produces pride in us and prides of sins, the same sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's a big deal. But then there's some of us that we're not on the, man, look at me. I've got it all together. We're not like Paul. We're on the other end. And I'm trying my best, and I just keep screwing up. I've got a whole list of things I need to stop doing, and I'm still doing all of them. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of us would go, that's me. And so what do you feel in this, this legalism trying to follow the rules? You don't feel pumped up with pride. You feel slammed crushed with discouragement why am i still struggling with this i'm gonna tell you this i'm 27 years into following jesus i still mainly struggle with the same stuff i struggled up when i was like 15 16 years old i mean there's some things that god has helped me to have victory over but the things that the devil still tempts me with it's the same stuff any takers on that it's the same stuff so i'm not gonna be able to look down my nose at you said i'm gonna be looking up and going, man i wish i could do it as good as paul did he always seemed to have it together. I'm never going to be like him. And we either feel with pride or we're filled with discouragement. And there's no joy in either of those. There's not. The people I know who seem they feel like they've got it all together, they're some of, the, um, some of the most judgmental and joyless people I know. They're not filled with joy. They spend all their time judging other people. The people I know that are crushed under the weight of discouragement because they can't get it all together, there's no joy there. And that's what... Legalism does. It either breeds pride or discouragement, and neither of those point us to Jesus. And and maybe you're in the room right now, and and I asked earlier if there's a whatever that's stealing your joy, but maybe there's an area, a sin that you're struggling with. And you know, you may have been working on this. i got to do better. i got to do better. But you keep failing, and you're so filled with discouragement. What's that area for you? Man, I'm just trying to follow the rules, but they don't do it. You see, God is good all the time, but we're not good most of the time. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul had just said, I was a Pharisee, and I was the best Pharisee who ever lived. I was the I was the poster child for Phariseeism. Okay, that was me. And Jesus says, You got to be better than the guy who is perfect if you want to get into heaven. How am I, I can't even be the perfect guy. How am I going to be, how do you get better than perfect? Quick answer. You can't. You can't. Why not? Because you were a sinner from birth. That's who you are. You came into this world. Gary, that's not, that doesn't fill me with joy. That just. what am I supposed to do with that? You're a sinner from birth. I can't be perfect. I can't be better than perfect. And that leads me to point three, the third truth. Jesus changes everything. God is good all the time. We are not good most of the time, but Jesus changes everything. Jesus is what connects us from our inability to produce righteousness to the righteousness of God. That's what happens with Jesus. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 3, Paul says this, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've discarded everything else. Counting it all as garbage so that I may have Christ and become one with him. No, Paul, you're going to throw away all of your training. You're going to throw away the position that you had. You're going to throw away the fact that you were keeping the law. You're going to throw all that away. It's all garbage compared to Jesus. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, even though he could do it pretty well. But I trust Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. And those are your two options. You can either attempt to get to God through your own efforts and achieving your own righteousness, or you can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only two options you have available. I'm going to tell you this. Option one, your own righteousness, you will never get there. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Even Paul, who said, I was the perfect guy, if he needed Jesus... God knows I do too. Any takers on that? If the guy who kept all the rules needed Jesus, a lawbreaker, rule breaker like me needs Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus changes everything. And that's how we keep the joy. Because... When, when things go wrong and we start to doubt the goodness of God and our joy has gone and we start to think, no, I'm pretty good, but I'm not. I've got to know the truth. I'm not good, but God is good. And now through Jesus, I can experience that because 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's why he did it. And I access that through faith in him. That's dependence upon him instead of dependence upon me. I'm a very undependable source for righteousness. I can't do it. I can't make my way. I can't get to heaven. If I could somehow be better than perfect, I could. But I can't. Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous will live by his faith. See, Jesus changes everything because Jesus gives to me his righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus became our sin. He didn't just take our sin. He became our sin. When he was suffering on the cross, it wasn't just because of the pain of the nails. He had in him the sin that had every sin that had ever been committed. The worst that you've done, the worst that I've done. And he died for it because we know sin is a transactional thing, right? The wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. It's going to be you or it was going to be him. And so he was willing to go there. He took that sin. And it says that he became sin so that when I am with him, when I am in him, I have his righteousness. So God now looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Not some failed attempt at righteousness by Carrie. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So as we wrap up, let me, this isn't in your notes, but you can write this down if you want. The the first thing I want you to know is this. Joy is never found apart from Jesus. Period. Period. You may experience moments of intense happiness. We know in the first message that Kevin talked about the difference. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is an internal thing that's given to us by Jesus. And it's never found apart from him. It isn't. Romans thirty-three twenty-one 21 through 22 says this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. I love that. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It's the same for all of us. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And joy is never found apart from Him. He fills us with His joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus is teaching about the, the relationship that he wants us to have with him, how close we're to be with him. And when he finishes, he says this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. I want you to be connected because I, Jesus wants you to be filled with joy. That my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Joyful. That's what Jesus wants. In the New Living Translation, it's actually, they, they word it, that your joy will overflow. And isn't that how people that are filled with joy work? They're not. I love the idea of being filled. I, I love the idea of overflowing even more. And that's how people that are filled with joy, that's how you know, right? It overflows, and it gets all over you. It's probably irritating to you because you're not filled with joy. What's wrong with that person? They just love Jesus. They're all, they're all about Jesus, and he's filled them and overflowing with, it, with the joy. That's how it works with Jesus. It's not a little bit of joy. It's not like half. It's overflowing. See, if it's overflowing, that seems like something that we could keep. We could keep because he fills us with his joy. And that's the second thing I want to give you here at the end, is that joy is sustained when our relationship with Jesus grows. It is. Uh, Philippians 3, 10 through 11, that last little section there, Paul says this, I want to know Christ, experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He said, I want to know him. I don't want to just know his name. I don't want to just want to go to a church that talks about him. I don't just want to have a, a Christian t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a cross neck. I don't just want to, yeah, I know Jesus. I want to, I want to know him. I want to get to know him. And and he says, when you get to know him, then you, you experience the power that raised him from the dead. But you don't experience the power that raised him from the dead until you suffer with him. Till you experience the, the death he died with sin, that's where your sin dies and you're raised to new life and you experience that power, that resurrection power. I want to know him. This is a guy who said, if anyone's effort could have ever gotten them to God, it was me and I couldn't get there. The joy is sustained when our relationship with Jesus grows. Earlier in that John 15 passage where Jesus is talking about our relationship with him, he said, I want you to stay connected to me. Here's what he said, remain in me. And I will remain in you, for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Our joy is sustained when we stay connected to Jesus, when we get to know him. Carrie, how do I do that? That's why he's given us the Bible. The whole thing's about Jesus. It's, it's, It's pointing... Even from the beginning, our need for him. And it worked all the way through of how God worked with his people. And it's all pointing to where Jesus arrives and he changes everything. And then you read the New Testament and it's everything that happened after Jesus came and shook things up and changed the world. And how his, his followers went out and changed the world and took the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's been imparted to you and me. You look at the end, it shows about him coming back and taking us home. It's all about him. We read it. We get to, he's revealed himself to us. Show us who he is, what he's like, what he loves. We remain in him. We abide in him. And when we do, he fills us with his joy. I've been through some rough seasons of life. Probably not as rough as what you've been through. I know this. I was always filled with joy when in the middle of that, I stayed with Jesus. As soon as I started stepping back and questioning his goodness, the joy was gone as soon as I started trying to depend on my own goodness, the joy was gone. But when we remain in him, he changes everything. He changes the way we see our situations. He changes the way we talk about them, the way we walk through them. You've seen people like that going through rough seasons they are still filled with joy. You're like, how do you do that? It's all through Jesus. Staying with him. So as we respond, I want to give you a a chance to respond to what God's speaking to you about in your heart right now. So would you pray with me? Well, we just we bow our heads just to focus. No one's looking around. They're, they're not worried about what you're doing, but, but God is. God's probably been speaking to your heart during this message through his word, and he wants you to respond in some way to that. Maybe it's that today is the day that you need to give your life to Jesus for real, all of it for the very first time. You need to, to commit your life to follow him. I've been trying to be good enough on my own, but today is the day when I'm just going to give that up and I'm going to receive the righteousness of Christ. If that's you today, I just invite you just to, to talk to God through prayer. Say, God, you know who I am. You know what I've done. You love me anyway. I thank you for sending Jesus for my sin. And today, God, I give you my heart. I give up all of my efforts to be good. And I receive the righteousness that can only be found in you if that's you today and you're making that decision to follow Jesus with our son would you just raise your hand so we can see you and pray for you nobody's looking around is there anybody in here maybe you are in here today and you've lost your joy you question the goodness of God you drifted away from him ironically in those moments where we question the goodness of God and we distance ourselves from him it's the very opposite of what we should do should run into him. Maybe today you'd say, I'm going to come back to Jesus. I want to refresh my commitment to him. I want to be filled with his joy, overflowing even in the midst of my whatevers. If that's you Dad, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand and say, today I want to come back to the joy. I see you down here. Anybody else up there in the top or right there in the middle? Any others? God, right now I pray for those that raise their hand, those who are committing their life to you for the very first time. God, those who are refreshing that commitment, coming back to you, God, today. I pray that you'll draw them close. You'll fill them to overflowing with your joy as they remain in you, as they seek Jesus with all their heart. God, thank you that we can be filled with joy. God, it's not just a, a nice idea, but it's what you want for us. I pray that it'll be true. God, that we'll live joyful lives. Thanks for listening.